Matthew, we're using the pulpit mic, right? Got it. If this were in Ukraine, I would be begin by saying, Ya Krista. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ. They always started that way. Today, we're going to do a good bit of vocabulary work to establish the range of meanings of the English word to know, the English verb. But have no fear. Eventually, there's an application, but it comes at the end. We'll, we'll look through a lot of the range of meanings in the Old Testament and in the New, and then comes the application. Have no fear, we will get there. To begin with that, I'd like for you to look at Genesis 19. When we look at the Old Testament, there's one Hebrew word that stands out, yada, to know. But within yada are three separate what you might call semantic domains, three separate areas where the word can be translated. The first one was common in English, but is no longer common. The second one is where we camp out, that we all know. And the third one is the most important and a bit rarer. Look at Genesis chapter 19. The verb to know can mean or used to mean both in Hebrew Greek and English, it used to mean to have sexual relations with, to know intimately. Look at Genesis 19.5. This is the sad story of Lot in Sodom. The angels come to visit him. He takes them in from the square, puts them in his house. And then we read in Genesis 19.5, But before they, this is verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them. Now, all your older translations will say to know them. The, the newer translations will have things like, to have sexual relations with them. That's New American Bible Revised Edition. The Net Bible, the uh, Hol Holman Christian Study Bible, the Christian Study Bible, the NIV, will say have sex with them. This is the old meaning. It was fine for a long time ago. All of your translations prior to the King James, and even afterward, will say to know them, but it was understood that what that meant was to violate them. What we were talking about is homosexual sex. So that's what's going on. That's the old meaning of it. We don't use that in English today. That, that's simply, it's not that it's wrong, it's simply that it's archaic. We, we don't talk in that way today. So, Range number one for yada, for Hebrew, is to know in a sexual way, to have sexual intimacy with someone. Now, there's a second use, far more common, and this is where we all use the word today. When, when we use the verb to know, we're thinking about cognitive, 
a cognitive to know, to be acquainted with either a person or a subject or an object or something. We use it that way, and of course the Bible does too. Flip over a few pages to Genesis 28, verse 16. This is Jacob when he leaves home because Esau has threatened to kill him when their father dies. So Jacob is, is traveling north. He comes to a place, lays down, goes to sleep, puts his head on a rock and has a dream that we know of as the dream of Jacob's ladder, a ladder ascending and descending from heaven to this place. And in Genesis 28, verse 16, we find these words in the ESV. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Now, that one is real common. We have no problem with that. That's how we use the word to know today. I, didn't, I wasn't acquainted with the fact. I didn't know the person, or I didn't know the fact. I didn't know the subject matter. We don't need to spend a lot of time here because this is what we instinctively think about when someone uses the verb to know. The third use is more important. The third use is basically hidden from us today. But if you've been in church a lot, if you've read your Bible a fair amount, it's almost intuitive. It's almost intuitive that certain places in the Bible, in the English Bible, when we, occur, when we encounter the word to know, we basically feel that's got to be more than a head knowledge. In fact, that's how we usually say it. It's more than a head knowledge. It's a heart knowledge. It's something else. I want to indicate the something else. To do that, um, you won't have to turn there, but the reference might be something like Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good. Indeed, he is a fortress in time of distress. He protects those who seek refuge in him. This is the Net Bible. He protects, but the actual Hebrew is Yada. He knows him. He knows him in a covenantal way. He knows him in a special way. The Lord knows that is, he protects those who seek refuge in, in him. From the, from the lexicons, the, the best serious dictionaries that we have for, for Hebrew to English, we find sentences like this. The basic meaning of yada is to know, but it may denote to take care of someone or to protect most English versions re, uh, render it here in Nahum 1.7. For instance, uh, King James, RSV, NASB, uh, New King James, they keep it as to know. But the idea is more than know about. When the prophet is talking about the Lord knowing the ones who take refuge in him, the idea isn't simply knowing about the person who they are, where they live, how many kids they have, etc. It means know in the sense of protect. The Lord protects those who are his. The nuance could be protect or cares for. It often refers to God protecting and caring for his people. Now I'm going to give you two examples, and these are weird, but they're important to see. 
They come from Hittite treaties. The Hittites were an ancient people somewhat north of Palestine in the area of modern-day Turkey, and they provide kind of the background, both culturally and linguistically, for the Israelites and for the Hebrew language. When the subject of the verb to know is a king and the object is a servant or a vassal, yada often has covenantal overtones. Here is one example. A letter from Abdi Ashirta, governor of Amura, to the Egyptian king, Amenophis III, ends with a plea for protection from the raids of the Mitanni. And here's what the vassal puts in the letter to the king. The vassal says, may the king my lord know me. Now, obviously, that know me goes beyond the, the, the cognitive. It doesn't mean, do you remember me? We had coffee together at Bob Evans. It's not that at all. May the Lord the King know me means may he protect me from the raid of the Mitanni, from the attacks of these, because you are my Lord and I am your vassal. That is, the Lord-vassal relationship, the covenantal relationship, means when I'm attacked as a vassal, I can depend on my Lord for protection, provision, and guidance. He can depend on me for loyalty and service and, and uh, faithfulness. So that's the, that's the use of the Hebrew yada to mean a covenantal bond. There's a second example. In the treaty between Mutwatalas and Alexandus, the Hittite king, that's the first guy, Mutawalas, he assures his vassal, that's Alexandus, he assures him that in case he was attacked, as he is an enemy of you, even so, he is an enemy to the sun, S-U-N. The Hittite kings often took to themselves the description of the sun, the brightest object in the heavens. I am the sun. I am the king. And so the king is writing to his vassal, your enemy is by covenant bond my enemy. And then he goes on, and this is key. I, the sun, S-U-N, will know only you, Alexandus. I, the king, will know only you. That is, recognize protect, provide for. We are in covenant relationship. Only you, not the other guys. This concept of to know is not common, and we don't use it in English at all, but to those of you who've been brought up in church and read your Bibles, this is the intuitive part where you just simply understand that sometimes in English, when you encounter no, it has a deeper meaning than to be acquainted with or to know facts about or to know details. It means something like a bond, a covenant, a linkage together. Now we're ready for the probably the two key passages. I do want you to turn to Amos 3.2. Amos 3.2 And here the prophet is talking about Israel. After 
condemning the nations around Israel for all their various sins. Now the prophet turns to Israel and makes this statement. The first part is the part that interests us. The second part is kind of an application. In Amos 3.2, the prophet voicing, voicing the thoughts of God, Yahweh, to Israel says this, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known. That's that Hebrew word, yada. But here, you can intuitively feel there's something more. God is not saying, I know about you. I know where you came from. I know who your fathers were. I know what you're doing, blah, 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 blah. It's more than that. You only. Now, God knows all that about the surrounding nations too. He knows where they came from. He knows who their fathers were. He knows what they've been up to. So this is different. This is not the cognitive use of to know, and it's obviously not the sexual use of it. This is that third use, the covenantal use. When God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, what you would expect to find following that is, so you have been greatly blessed. I have poured out my blessings on you. You only have I got this bond with. You're my, special, you're my favorite child. You are my favorite people. But that's not what the prophet says. And this, this will need to hold in the back of our mind when we move to the New Testament. He says, as a result of this, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Whoa. You see what's going on? The covenant bond between Yahweh, the superior, and Israel, the vassal, the, the subordinate, the covenant bond means when the vassal steps out of line, the, the superior will discipline them, will punish them. Now, Israel was not really ready to hear that. Israel wanted to hear, we are the chosen people, so God will bless us. Well, yes, but you remember the New Testament principle, to whom much has been given, much will be required. That's what's going on here in Amos 3.2. The covenant bond means I will discipline you when you don't uphold your end of the covenant bond. So that is what Amos is saying. The verb to know is that Hebrew verb, yada. And so this is the third use. I want Before we leave the Old Testament, I want to give you one example that you will not, you will not expect. It's from, a, it's from a text that many of us have memorized. We know it. And here's my challenge. Put your thinking caps on. The verb yada is hidden in this English translation. You tell me where you think it occurs. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Many of us have read this, memorized it. Here's what it sounds like in the ESV. The verb yada is hidden here, but where? Which word? Here's what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say in the ESV. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. 
within that well-known pair of verses, there is a translation of yada, Hebrew, to know where. Say it out loud. It's okay. Nobody cares. Acknowledge. That's it. The verb, the verb acknowledge in almost all of our translations covers up the fact that the, the Hebrew word is yada, to know. Look how this would sound if you put it back in its literal sense. In all your ways, know him, and he will make straight your paths. Know him. Now, you can feel, you can feel intuitively what this is saying. It doesn't mean know facts about God. It doesn't mean being able to recite answers to Sunday school questions. It doesn't mean to know what the great confessions of faith have said through the ages, as good as they are. It means, in all your ways, obey him. Now, some of the modern translations say that. They will say, obey him, submit to him. That's the idea. That is the covenant bond. So there, there are two examples of the fact that to know, yada, in the Old Testament can have three different semantic implications. It can mean to know sexually. It can mean the one that we're familiar with, that is cognitive, to know or be acquainted with a fact, a person, uh, a situation, something like that. that. That one we've got nailed down because that's how we use the word. But this third one is a bit hidden. It can have a covenantal meaning. I have known you, but I have not known them. And when God says that, it doesn't mean I'm ignorant about this other one. It means I have not formed a covenant bond. They have not formed a covenant bond with me, but I have with you. Therefore, I will live up to my part, which are promises, not obligations. God is not obliged in any way, but he does make promises. We are obliged to be his vassal, and when we don't, he will discipline us. This is Old Testament. Now, when we jump to the New Testament, we're talking about a different era and a different language. We go from Hebrew to Greek. So you can't transfer everything that you know about yada to English in the New Testament where it says to know, because the Greek word behind the, the word to know in the New Testament is a separate word, ginosko. So it's up to me to show you that it can also have those three semantic domains. So not only does yada have three in the Old Testament, ginosko has three in the New Testament. First, let's talk about the, the sexual one. Uh, Luke one thirty four would be the key text. Luke one thirty four, this is the angel's encounter with Mary to tell her that she is going to give birth to the Son of Man, to Jesus, the Savior. So the angel makes this statement and proclamation, which sounds absolutely phenomenal, but Mary brings up a practical objection. Mary says in 134, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's fine. That's what it means, but that is certainly not what it says. She does not use the to be verb, I am, and the noun for virgin. Those words exist. She could have said that, 
but she doesn't. She actually says in Greek, I do not know a man. Okay, there's your first use, your sexual use of the verb to know. I do not know a man, and she says it in present tense. I do not know a man. So how can I have a baby if I do not know a man? Now, I looked back all of the early translations. You can go all the way back to Wycliffe in the 1300s. You can go from Wycliffe to Tyndale, Coverdale, John Rogers and the Matthew Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Great Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the King James. They all say, I do not know a man. So, and why could they say it? Because the, the, the expression was known. It was current then. It's not current now. <clears throat> Even the Russian Bibles, uh, Kaylee, says, Yamuja Niznayu. I do not know a man. Same thing. So this is what Mary says. She uses the to-know the uh, to verb, gnosko, to say, how can I have a child when I do not know a man? Now, the second use, the cognitive use, is the common one. That's the one we run into all the time, both Old Testament and New Testament. Same thing in the New Testament, <clears throat> to be acquainted with a person or a fact. Um, John chapter 21 is a good chapter. This is Jesus in his resurrection appearance. He's at the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. You'll remember the backstory to this. Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's been appearing to his disciples. Peter, for whatever reason, said, you remember Peter's occupation prior? He was a fisherman. He said, hey, guys, I'm going fishing. And six or seven of his friends say, we're going with you. So they go out to fish on the Sea of Galilee. This is home stomping grounds. P Peter knows the Sea of Galilee. He came from a fisherman's family. He fished it all his life until Jesus got a hold of him. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. They go fishing. While they are fishing at night, Jesus comes up on the shore, builds a charcoal fire, same kind of fire that burned in the, in the courtyard, the night he was betrayed, and it has a unique smell to it. He builds a charcoal fire. Now, this is not in this sermon, but I can't pass it up. We always talk about irony in John, and usually we focus at the end of John 21, where Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Three times. And, and Peter finally says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Now, what's the irony? Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him three times the night that he was arrested, and so Peter did. So it had to hurt Peter to the core to have Jesus say three times, do you love me? But, but the point is, do you remember, Peter? I told you you were going to deny me, and so you did. But there's irony before you get to that. When the boat comes in, this time in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus asks the form of a negative question. You didn't catch anything, did you, boys? He doesn't say, did you catch anything? He said, you didn't catch anything, did you? Now, why would that be important? Because the first time Peter met Jesus was on the, in, on the Sea of Galilee, and that's when <clears throat> Jesus borrowed his boat. He said to him, 
push out to sea, let down your nets for a catch. And Peter said, Lord, come on, have a heart, be reasonable. We fished all night long, haven't caught a thing. But at your word, I'll, I'll go do this. Now we're back to the Sea of Galilee and we're talking about fish again. But do you remember the first time? The first time the miraculous catch of fish led Peter to say, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He recognized he was a sinner and Jesus was divine. He was something special. Jesus said to him at the end of that passage, don't worry about it. From now on, you'll be fishers of men. Fishers of men, a new career for Peter. Uh, Peter, where are you now in chapter 21? You're back on the Sea of Galilee fishing for fish. There has to be irony in this when Jesus said, you didn't catch any fish, did you? No, they didn't. Peter has to be thinking, uh-oh, I'm not supposed to be back here fishing. I am a fisher of men, not cod or gefilte fish or whatever else they're catching out there. So anyway, um, the point of this is, as the day was breaking, this is verse 3. As the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This is the common use of to know. This is to be acquainted with a person or a fact. They didn't recognize in the, in the early morning hours, they didn't recognize the figure standing there is Jesus, resurrected. But they didn't know that. Now, flip over just one or two pages to Acts 1-6. This is another cognitive use. The disciples, in the presence of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, they say to him in verses 6 and 7 of Acts chapter 1, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of God to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. There is gnosko, the Greek word for to know, in the normal sense, <clears throat> the way we use it now, same way. But there is now, now, get ready because the shoe's almost ready to fall, the hammer's ready to fall. Now we get to the covenantal use. This one is less recognized, but many of you who've been in church can feel it. You can intuit this. <clears throat> the covenantal use is revealed, for instance, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. John 17, verse 3. This is the longest prayer recorded of our Lord, the high priestly prayer prior to his arrest, trial, conviction, and crucifixion. John 17, 3. Jesus is praying to the Father. And here he gives a definition. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they know you. Now, you can feel that here. That's got to be more than a head knowledge. It's got to be more than knowing facts, knowing what the confessions say, being able to cross the T and dot the I's and get all your definitions in line. It's more than that. It's got to be more than that, that you know God in an intimate, personal, personal way. Not because your parents 
know God, but because you do. So you can feel that. And with that said, we're ready to go to, all this is introduction, by the way. <laughs> now we go to the text. Here's the text, Matthew 7, 21. The whole point of this was to establish that the English verb to know in both Old Testament and New Testament can have a sexual meaning, it can have a cognitive meaning, and it can have a covenantal meaning. Now we are ready for some scary words. Matthew 7, 21. This is the end, close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, meant the day of judgment, many will say to me, now here's, here's their profession of faith, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? One. Cast out demons in your name, two, and do many mighty works in your name, three. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. I didn't know you all. I didn't know all y'all, if you're from the South. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Clarence Jordan who had a Ph.D. in Greek from Southern Seminary in the 1920s, he was translating some of the books of the New Testament to be used among rural Georgia tenant farmers. He translated that last phrase, you workers of lawlessness. I like his translation. He said, you wicked racketeers of religion. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty neat. That captures it. They were using... They were using the name of Jesus, and Jesus said, whoa, wait a minute. You did all that work, but I never knew you. And, and what's here? Did Jesus not know factually what they were doing? Of course he knew, and the Father knew. It can't be cognitive. It's got to be covenantal. I never had the covenant bond of Lord and vassal with you. You did all this. But you weren't my vassal, and I wasn't your Lord. One illustration of this occurred in the, in the Reformation when the Pope sent his legate, his, his representative, Cardinal Cajetan, sent him to Saxony, an area in Germany, to say to Prince Frederick, Duke of Saxony, the elector of Germany, very important person, the Pope demands that you hand over Martin Luther. We're going to bind him, arrest him, carry him to Rome, and try him for heresy. And Duke Frederick, he's known as Frederick the Wise, and his answer was really wise. He said to the cardinal, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can't do it that way. You see, I am his liege lord. And he is my vassal. He's my servant. In other words, there's a covenant bond. I can't turn him over to you without violating what medieval feudalism had established as the, as the, the, appropriate, the appropriate relationship. I can't just hand him over to you. He's my subject. I tell you what, you bring the lawyers from Rome and we'll try him here in Saxony. And that's what they did. But do you see the defense that Frederick the Wise gave 
to the the Pope's representative because of the contractual bond, the covenant bond of I know him and he knows me. I owe him protection, provision, and guidance. He owes me loyalty and service. I can't turn him over to you. That would be to violate my responsibilities as the liege lord. The word liege is the same root that we have in allegiance. It means somebody placed over in authority over someone else, whether that other person is considered a vassal, a slave, a bondservant, um, a serf, whatever. That's the relationship. And Frederick used that to refuse to hand over Luther. You can try him, but you bring the accusers here to Saxony because this man is mine. I know who he is. Jesus is saying, I never knew you. There was never any covenant bond. Where does this come down to us? What is the purpose of all this? One question. Most of you have been in church a long time. When you were toddlers, your parents brought you to church and you didn't have a choice. When you went to elementary school, middle school, high school, you got more involved. You couldn't, you couldn't exactly refuse your parents. And most of you would have said, look, p- preacher, I'm, I'm not a rebellious son or daughter. I, I did everything that they asked me to do. Um, I never disagreed with anything they said in church about who Jesus was or what he did. I believe he was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. Third day, he rose from the dead. (coughs) All of that I believe. I even served. I even went on ski trips with the youth. I belonged to the youth group. I served in the church. Every now and then I would help take down the chairs and set up the tables for fellowship time. I was always there in Sunday school. But the question is, not do you know things about God, are you in covenant relationship with God? Because if not, the other is not going to carry any weight whatsoever. Here's the point. You can grow up in church and have no problem with the doctrine, no problem with what's taught. You can come and be obedient and, and easy to get along with, and everybody likes you, and still not be in covenant relationship with the only God that there is in this universe. Are you the vassal of your superior liege, liege lord, Jesus? <coughs> have you sworn allegiance to him? Have you said, Lord Jesus, you have purchased me with your blood. I belong to you. I will serve you, I will be faithful to you, not because my parents expect me to, not because simply I love my parents, but because I love you. Have you reached that point? That is the only point at which salvation is obtained. It has to be personal. It cannot be secondhand. As good and and worthy as church attendance is and submission and obedience to your parents, that is not going to work. Some people are in church their whole life and they know a great deal about God, about the Bible, about Jesus, but they're not in covenant relationship to him. 
when I was unsaved, I went to my freshman year, my second freshman year, I flunked out my first year. My second freshman year, at the advice of a Marine chaplain who was friends with my dad, who was a Marine officer, <coughs> I went to Erskine College, South Carolina. Anybody ever heard of Erskine College? I didn't think so. Well, there's one. I didn't think so. I hadn't either. It is so far back in the boonies of South Carolina, you've got to pipe the sunlight in. <clears throat> it's run by the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Required of all incoming freshmen is a course in Old Testament survey. They called it a course in ancient history. Uh, every freshman took it. I took it. They gave an award at the end of the year for the highest um, average in that class. I won that award, not as a believer. I, didn't, I wasn't saved, but I won the award. I know how to study. I know how to remember things. I had the highest average. When the Lord did save me in the army in Germany, I thought, boy, this is great. I won't have to do anything in the Old Testament. I still got my notebook. Man, I won an award. I got a medal at home that says I won the award. Highest average in that school. When I went back and looked at the notebook, you know what I discovered? Nothing. There wasn't anything of faith there. Yes, it was a list of kings that I memorized, a list of kingdoms, a list of rules, a set of proof texts. I had all the data and nothing in terms of a relationship to God. It was totally worthless. I threw my notebook away. I said, this isn't going to help. There was no covenant bond between me and the Lord at the point that I took that class. So it didn't, it didn't profit me. I realized that notebook and all, that, all those lists are not going to help at all. That, that's water under the bridge. So here's, here's where I want to leave you today. Not so much do you know God, but does God know you? Will he say, this one is mine. I am his liege Lord and he is my vassal. I will protect him. I paid for his sins. I covered his salvation. He's mine. Or will the Lord say, yeah, I, they were active in church and all that, but I never knew them. Mm -mm. That's what's scary about this passage. Is your knowledge of God firsthand or is it derived? Is it covenant knowledge or is it simply head knowledge? You know things about him. Only you can answer that. But I guarantee you there's a time coming when Jesus will say either, Father, I know this one. He is my vassal. Been my vassal for a long time. I've paid for his sins. These others, <clears throat> they're religious all right, but I never knew them. What a scary thought that is. Do you know God in this third sense? Covenantal. Not simply cognitive. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your words here. Thank you for helping us see just a wee bit more of a couple of important words, an Old Testament word and a New Testament word, Hebrew and Greek. Father, we would pray that we want to be an obedient vassal. We want to be in that covenant bond with our Lord. He is our Lord. He is our only Lord. We know him only as Lord. Father, may it be so. Touch our hearts. 
draws to Christ who welcomes all who will come to him in faith and repentance. <clears throat> Father, we give you thanks for this day, this time together. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and to understand our own situation. Do we truly covenantally know you and do you covenantally know us? We pray this in Jesus' name.